0: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo and this is the 126th edition of the program. Today is January 11th and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to send huge shout outs to all of these individuals that decided to sign up to contribute to us either through Patreon or PayPal. This week we have Austin Heller, Daniel Baker, Evan Hammack, Ghost Train 3000, Gideon Almi, four. Ivan Conrad, Wynn. Jamie Pitts, Michael Sanchez, Sam99, Stephanie, Stephen Squibb, Susan Ansorg, Vincent Gitschwing and W.M. Gary Cannon. So, thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support The Humanist Report, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So, on today's episode, first, the media, along with the Democratic Party strategists and members of the M.I.C. resistance, by and large, are all smitten by the idea of Oprah running for president in 2020. Doug Jones is struggling to be progressive on pretty much anything. Democrats are trying to push for a clean DACA bill and Trump surprisingly seems like he is willing to go along with them. Newsweek decided to smear Bernie Sanders as a pseudo-socialist for wearing a $700 coat. A Vermont publication published a misleading story about the Jane Sanders investigation, presumably in an attempt to smear Bernie ahead of the 2020 presidential election. Kirsten Gillibrand cites Bernie Sanders as the leader of the Democratic Party. States push back against Attorney General Jeff Sessions' attack on legal marijuana. We'll talk about the revelations from Michael Wolf's new book about the Trump presidency, including how Paul Ryan actually talked Donald Trump out of supporting Medicare for All. The bill to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality is starting to gain a lot of momentum in the Senate. We'll talk about that. And finally, on this episode, Sheriff Joe Arpaio announced his decision to run for the U.S. Senate. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode let's go ahead and jump right in because we've got quite a bit to talk about. Enjoy the show. So by now, I'm sure you all know that everyone and their dog has been talking about Oprah Winfrey potentially running to be president in 2020. And this isn't the first time that there's been speculation about her running because before she hinted that she was interested in potentially jumping in the race in 2020. But the media and Democratic Party strategists and members of the MiC resistance are taking her seriously now because she gave a rousing speech at the Golden Globe Awards, and a lot of people are viewing this as a precursor to a potential presidential bid. So I want all the girls watching here now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And win that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men, fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again. Now, admittedly, that was a phenomenal speech. I think she did a great job, and the message was on point. Oprah, in general, is a very likable person. She's inoffensive. Everyone pretty much loves Oprah, including the current president of the United States, because in an interview with Larry King in 1999, he was talking about his presidential aspirations and a potential run with the Reform Party. And this is what he said when he was asked who he would choose to be his VP running mate. Do you
2: have a vice presidential candidate in mind? Well, I really haven't gotten quite there yet. Uh, it's, I guess it's just you Oprah. Oprah. I love Oprah. Oprah would always be my first choice. Oprah. Uh, Oprah, your competitor, right? Yeah, oh, Oprah's she, a competitor. You know what? No she's, I'll tell you, she's really a great woman, though. She is a terrific woman. She's, she's somebody that's very special.
0: So that confirms that everyone loves Oprah. <laughs> However, I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Simply admiring someone doesn't make them qualified to be the president, nor does a speech that they gave make them qualified to be the president. But this hasn't stopped the Democratic Party and its strategists from jumping on the Oprah 2020 bandwagon, with some even offering to run her presidential campaign in 2020 and other strategists saying an Oprah campaign would be, quote, electric. Now, the individual that specifically said that an Oprah campaign would be electric is none other than Brian Fallon, who ran... Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. He was her press secretary. And of course, Someone who ran a campaign that ultimately lost to a reality television show star, I mean, any and everything that they say shouldn't matter. I mean, just the fact that he was part of a campaign that lost to Donald Trump should permanently discredit anything he ever has to say regarding politics, but in a CNN panel with Brian Fallon and other political strategists, you'll see just how excited they really were about the prospect of another reality television show star running for president now keep in mind this is after these same people said that Donald Trump shouldn't be president because he's not qualified this is what they're saying now about Oprah don't you think if she entered the race she would jump to the top of the heap
3: yeah I do Um, I have no idea if she's going to run I don't know what her position is on most policy issues I certainly don't think that the party needs to lurch for some celebrity answer to Donald Trump I think we have a good stable of potential candidates so we don't need Oprah But if she got into the race, would she be a huge force to be reckoned with? Perhaps even the favorite? Absolutely. I think it would be electric. I think there's a lot of sort of wise people in Washington today sort of scoffing at this and they're talking about, hey, the public usually likes somebody that's different from the previous president. So the Democratic uh, primary voters are not going to want to vote for a celebrity to answer a celebrity in Donald Trump. I think that does a disservice to Oprah. Uh, You can be a celebrity and be famous before entering politics, without being Donald Trump. She is somebody that over 30 years has demonstrated an ability to uniquely inspire people, to relate to people. She showed an intellectual curiosity that Donald Trump just doesn't possess a big heartedness that I think would make her a very appealing candidate if she decided to Wow. Vote.
4: Oprah, I think I found your campaign spokesman. Um, <laughs> Trump is, his, some of his um, challenges are with minority voters, uh, with liberal elites, with liberal voters, uh, with young people. Um, he's starting to show up real problems with Republican women. I mean, that kind of sounds like an Oprah coalition.
5: Yeah, I, 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 that's why I believe that Oprah would be, if she ran for president, would be quite formidable.
4: Her longtime partner, partner Stedman Graham, told a reporter from the Los Angeles Times that, that she might absolutely run. So uh, what are we to make of that?
3: Well, I think that the fact that she seems to have taken care to avoid politics throughout much of her career... Uh, means that she's built up something of a reservoir of goodwill, where every move that she made if she became a candidate would not be greeted with the typical cynicism that you see voters uh, greet a lot of politicians' moves uh, with. So Tom was saying that, you know, she'll have to take policy positions that will necessarily alienate people. That's true. But I think she'd be extended more of a benefit of the doubt based on her 30-year track record. And it, I remember during the 2016 campaign, her support for Hillary, who just played the clip from that late-night show, It was pretty muted. She's Picked her spots. I think that would serve her well. I don't think she'd be greeted as some kind of political hack that was just trying to get into a, the race for her ego like Donald Trump has been viewed.
0: All right. Oh, really now, Brian? Are you seriously telling me that Oprah Winfrey wouldn't be running for egotistical reasons? Really? She literally has a magazine named after herself, and can you guess who's on the cover of every single issue? Oprah! (laughs) And And she also has a television channel named after herself as well, unsurprisingly. I mean, she's just as narcissistic as Donald Trump. The difference is that she doesn't wear it on her sleeve like him. I mean, she literally sells her name as a brand in the same way that Donald Trump does. So to say that she is running for altruistic reasons and isn't just doing it because her ego is too overly inflated is absurd to me. But as you can see by watching that clip, They've all drunk the Kool-Aid. They all are buying into this idea that another television show star and billionaire should get into the race when they have absolutely no political experience whatsoever. And that discussion was merely a microcosm of the broader conversation that's been going on with regard to an Oprah presidential run. So we all know that people are talking about Oprah running and that she might run, but as Politico asks, should Oprah run? And there's a very simple answer to that question.
1: No! God!
0: No, God, please, no! 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 So the fact that I have to come out here and explain to people why Oprah Winfrey should never be the president of the United States, it boggles my mind. So I don't even know where to begin. But first of all, she's apolitical. If you're excited about Oprah Winfrey running, then what excites you just because she has a nice personality? I mean, look at this tweet from Sarah Silverman. She states, Oprah Winfrey and Michelle Obama 2020. But what policy positions excite you about this duo, Sarah? What? Because as far as we know, Oprah could be a Republican. We don't know because she doesn't really talk about her policy positions ever. She's apolitical. So how can you be excited for someone who would be the commander-in-chief, the chief executive, if they haven't even told you anything about their policy positions? Furthermore, she's a billionaire. We're not supposed to live in an oligarchy. If she wins the nomination, though, in 2020, that will be a contest between two billionaires. And when you consider the possibility of Mark Zuckerberg or Mark Cuban entering the race, I mean, at that point, what's the sense of even voting? We might as well just officially hand over the keys of the country to billionaires because they already buy off politicians in order to get the policy concessions that they want, but now they're just cutting out the middlemen and they're trying to just run the country themselves directly. So, unless Oprah Winfrey is in favor of some really, and I mean really, progressive policies, then I wouldn't vote for her just on the principle of her being a billionaire alone. Because we already have multimillionaires running for president, and that's bad enough, but to have a billionaire run for president, I just find that idea offensive. The fact that we have a billionaire president is offensive to me. Now, another reason why Oprah shouldn't run is because she has more name recognition than legitimate candidates like Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Why should she throw her name in the race when she has zero political experience whatsoever, and basically suck up all the media attention that real progressive candidates like Bernie Sanders would otherwise be receiving. I mean, that makes no sense for me. She could basically change the entire outcome of the Democratic primary in 2020. All because she's a bored billionaire that has nothing better to do with her time than meddle in American politics. Now, there's also a lot of red flags about her past. We don't know much, but what we do know is that, for one, she's promoted a lot of fraud doctors like Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil. She also frequently promoted medical practices not endorsed by science or any actual doctors. So, for example, she actually helped Suzanne Somers promote the idea that directly injecting estrogen shots into women's vaginas will make them age slower. She promoted this idea on her show, and she defended Suzanne Somers against warnings that doctors were issuing about doing something this stupid. And believe it or not, those aren't even the most problematic aspects about Oprah Winfrey's show. So in October of 2002, Oprah literally dedicated an entire episode of her show to the Iraq War. And as counter punches, Fedwa Wazwaz explains, Oprah Winfrey used her program to market the war, where she showcased clips from supposed experts that said the United States had, quote, a moral obligation to rid the world of Saddam Hussein. In fact, Oprah's warmongering on that episode was so brazen that one audience member actually called her out on how, quote, the show seemed to be propagandizing in favor of war, to which Oprah responded by saying she wasn't advocating for any position, even though she brought on people to specifically advocate for one position but she was just instead laying out the facts in order to help her audience decide in fact when you go back to that clip oprah actually got arguably defensive when she was called out
6: even oprah got in on the act featuring in october 2002 new york times reporter judith miller
7: the U.S. intelligence community believes that Saddam Hussein has deadly stocks of anthrax, of botulinum toxin, which is one of the most virulent poisons known to man.
6: Liberal Hulk <laughs> Kenneth Pollack.
2: And what we know for a fact from a number of defectors who've come out of Iraq over the years is that Saddam Hussein is absolutely determined to acquire nuclear weapons and is building them as fast as he can.
6: And the right-hand man to and Ahmed Chalabi.
8: And so, do the Iraqi people want the American
2: people to liberate them? Absolutely. In 1991, the Iraqi people are... I hope that doesn't offend you.
6: When one um, guest dared to express doubt, Oprah would have none of it.
8: Happen. I just don't know what to believe with the media. Oh, we're not trying to propaganda, show you propaganda, we're just showing you what
0: is. I understand that okay but okay you have a right to your opinion you know right. right. (laughs) right now that along with the other problems i listed about oprah that doesn't necessarily imply that she's a bad person in fact maybe she wasn't even willfully promoting The Iraq War, maybe she was trying to appear to be objective and only unwittingly promoted it, but either way, the point is that Oprah doesn't have the required expertise to lead the country. Donald Trump doesn't either, and even though she would probably do a better job than Donald Trump, admittedly, there's an abundance of qualified candidates that could potentially run in 2020. Nina Turner, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, even Gavin Newsom, I mean there's a lot of people that I would support and vote for. Oprah Winfrey is not one of them, again, unless she basically is an extreme leftist who is as progressive as Bernie Sanders, but I don't think that that would be the case. Since she knows nothing about politics, presumably, she would probably hire a bunch of strategists that would just tell her what to do. She would be a rehearsed politician, most likely, who would just, you know, try to try to play it safe and be a centrist, and that's so harmful. But with the way in which cable news and Democratic Party strategists and the so-called resistance, are losing their minds over the prospect of Oprah running, they're legitimizing her, either wittingly or unwittingly, and they're making it that much more likely that she does actually run, and believe it or not, she is thinking about running. She stated this directly. So I'm going to say it again. Billionaires like Donald Trump and Oprah Winfrey have no business in politics because a billionaire is incapable of representing ordinary Americans. They don't know what we deal with. They can't represent us. It's impossible. And we see that playing out in real life. Donald Trump has no clue what he's doing, and he's not representing us. He's getting in there, and he's giving all of his rich friends tax cuts, hence why when he showed up to Mar-a-Lago on Christmas vacation, he congratulated them and said, hey, you all just got a lot richer because of the tax bill I just signed into law. We don't need more of that. So, to answer Politico's question as to whether or not Oprah Winfrey should run for president, the answer is an unequivocal hell no. Stay in your lane, Oprah. So, even though I'm late to the party on this particular issue, I couldn't not talk about an absurd article about bernie sanders which is probably one of the most hackiest hit pieces i've ever read and this article is important not just because it highlights the stupidity of the so-called resistance and their opposition to bernie sanders but it really sheds light on the broader media climate in the united states of america so journalist maria perez of newsweek attacks bernie sanders because as you might have heard He wore a $700 jacket. She writes, Senator Bernie Sanders sported a $700 coat on Monday during New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's swearing-in ceremony. The socialist was cozy and warm in a $690 Burton 2L-LZ down jacket as de Blasio was assuming office for the second time in a row during the frigid temperatures at City Hall. Sanders, 76, joked, saying of the weather, by Vermont standards, this is a warm and pleasant afternoon. Sanders is famous for slamming the billionaire class. In November, he penned a lengthy column on CNN criticizing the Trump administration and arguing that the wealthy are never satisfied with what they have and always want more, more, and more. But that jacket Sanders wore was pretty pricey despite his plight to fight against the wealthy. Sanders, June, Financial Disclosure Form stated that he earned more than $858,000 in book royalties alone in addition to his Senate salary of $174,000. Sanders is part of the top 1% nationally. Sanders' six-figure income has not deterred him from criticizing the rich. In April, the senator tweeted, How many yachts do billionaires need? How many cars do they need? Give us a break. You can't have it all. However, the backlash was swift, with dozens of Twitter users pointing out that Sanders had three houses and is one of the richest politicians in the United States. Sanders and his wife, Jane, bought a summer home in Vermont on Lake Champlain in 2016 to add to their houses in D.C. and Burlington, Vermont. Local magazines Seven Days reported that the Sanders family paid about 600000 for their lakefront home in North Hero, Vermont. Despite his salary, the senator wrote that people need to come together to take on the greed of the oligarchs. Got em. Wow. Um, so- I don't even know where to begin. The argument itself is illogical, but this journalist couldn't even bother to get basic facts right. So, first of all, Bernie Sanders did not purchase that jacket himself. As Jane Sanders points out, it was a present from his son, and when it comes to the vacation house, Bernie Sanders doesn't own three homes. And the implication in this article is that a socialist shouldn't own three houses, but Jane Sanders also cleared this up months ago. So as Snopes writes, Jane O'Mara Sanders said that she had inherited a vacation home in Maine, but the family was unable to make use of it due to its distance from their primary residence in Vermont, so she sold it and used the proceeds to finance the purchase of a more suitable vacation home in North Hero. So in other words, they were able to purchase their second home by using funds from the property they sold that Jane Sanders inherited. But let's be extra kind to this author here, and let's actually assume that Bernie Sanders did not receive this coat as a gift and that he's spent $1,000 on it. Let's also assume that Bernie Sanders does, in fact, have three houses. He doesn't. And let's also assume that he is, in fact, one of the richest senators in Congress. That's also not true. There are people who are multi-millionaires. I mean, you have Nancy Pelosi, net worth of over $100 million. But let's assume that she's correct here. Would that make Bernie Sanders a hypocrite? Would that make him a pseudo-socialist? The answer is, is of course not. Bernie Sanders has never argued that people shouldn't be allowed to be wealthy or spend money on expensive things. He's saying that wealthy people can still do all of those things, but they can't shirk their responsibility to the country. They still have to pay their fair share of taxes. They can't buy politicians that will rewrite tax codes for them in order to make themselves even richer at the expense of everyone else. If you're rich, you have a responsibility to look out for those less fortunate than you. Now, if Bernie Sanders started to take the revenue from his book and stored away the tax dollars in some tax haven or started buying off politicians in order to give himself more tax breaks, that would be a different story. I could see why you would be peeved about what he's doing, but that's not the case. Bernie Sanders is paying his fair share of taxes. Bernie Sanders is still advocating for the rights of the less fortunate in this country, and even though a lot of millionaires are in fact out of touch with the plight of normal Americans, Bernie Sanders tours the country on a regular basis speaking to ordinary Americans, so he's not even out of touch. And with the amount of money he's making, yes, I would admittedly characterize him as someone who's rich, but so long as he pays his fair share I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with billionaires because I think that's too much wealth and that is inherently greedy. But for someone who just has a couple million dollars, I really don't have a problem with that. I think they have a responsibility and Bernie Sanders is really doing a good job at living up to that responsibility. He's fighting for everyone else to make sure that poor people don't have to struggle and live paycheck to paycheck. Simply being rich doesn't automatically make someone a bad person, with the exception of maybe billionaires. But she is implying here that progressives had advocated this position when nobody has. Bernie Sanders hasn't. Nobody has. Jill Stein has a net worth of more than $5 million. FDR was a multi-millionaire who inherited the wealth from his family. FDR went on to sign the New Deal into law. Jill Stein was one of the most progressive presidential candidates in American history. You can be rich and still fight for the American people. Bernie Sanders doesn't have hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a different story. Billionaires, you know, I think that that in and of itself is a moral issue because nobody can ever spend a billion dollars. But Bernie Sanders, he's wealthy. He sold a book. Um, He sold a couple books, actually, and senators in general are wealthy because they make $174,000 a year. I don't have a problem with that so long as they're fighting for us. The problem I do have is that millionaires in general, multimillionaires specifically, they want even more wealth. They want to be even more greedy. They'll rig the system in favor of themselves to take money out of our pockets and give themselves even more tax cuts. That's what we saw with this tax reform plan. We saw Republicans rob the poor in order to finance tax cuts for the wealthy. That's what we have a problem about income and wealth inequality. So this article really sheds light on just how poor the state of American media really is in this country. They don't have any substantive way of attacking or criticizing Bernie Sanders. So neoliberal hacks like this author have to resort to pathetic and failed attempts to smear the most popular politician in the country. Because I mean, what else are they? going to attack him on. If you really, think about this, if you have nothing more to do than write articles about Bernie Sanders wearing a $700 coat, then I think it's, um, it's not wrong for me to point out that maybe you should really do some introspection and think about why you got into journalism. I mean, are you just trying to smear Bernie Sanders for no reason because you don't like him and you don't want him to run in 2020 because you want some neoliberal hack like Kamala Harris to run? I mean, if you really wanted to criticize Bernie, you can write about foreign policy issues that I think he's not progressive enough on. But of course, her candidate will inevitably not be even remotely as close to Bernie Sanders is on foreign policy issues. So even though Bernie Sanders isn't progressive enough on foreign policy issues, on some foreign policy issues, he still leagues more liberal than any of his Democratic Party opponents who might run. So they have nothing. And It's pathetic, and quite frankly, I think it's embarrassing. So as you all know, the Keebler elf slash attorney general running the Justice Department currently, Jeff Sessions, decided to unilaterally end an Obama-era guideline on marijuana known as the Cole Memo. Now, this is important because since states with legal and medical marijuana technically are in violation of federal laws... Well, the Cole Memo was created as a sort of compromise between the federal government and states, where the federal government looks the other way, essentially, if states do, in fact, want to legalize medical or recreational marijuana, but at the same time, the federal government doesn't completely get out of the business of regulating state marijuana laws altogether. As Leafly explains, the Cole Memo was a document originally drafted by former U.S. Attorney General James M. Cole in 2013. Cole issued a memorandum to all U.S. attorneys that was published through the Department of Justice on August 29, 2013. The memo indicated that prosecutors and law enforcement should focus only on the following priorities related to state legal cannabis operations. Preventing the distribution of marijuana to minors. Preventing revenue from the sale of marijuana from going to criminal enterprises, gangs, and cartels. Preventing the diversion of marijuana from states where it is legal under state law in some form to other states, preventing state-authorized marijuana actively from being used as a cover or pretext for the trafficking of other illegal drugs or other illegal activity, preventing violence and the use of firearms in the cultivation and distribution of marijuana, preventing drugged driving and the exacerbation of other adverse public health consequences associated with marijuana use preventing the growing of marijuana on public lands and the attendant public safety and environmental dangers posed by marijuana production on public lands and preventing marijuana possession or use on federal property. So, since the jurisdiction of marijuana laws overlaps between states and the federal government, this memo allowed states to legalize marijuana if they wanted to, but it also let the federal government outline enforcement priorities when it comes to the sale of marijuana. But what was important about the Cole Memo was that it intended omits any mention of banning states from selling marijuana outright if they wanted to. So it was essentially a necessary compromise that made everyone happy, and it's been the status quo since August of 2013, as the last article pointed out, which is shortly after the first two states legalized marijuana. However, Attorney General Jeff Sessions decided to rescind the Cole memo, which means that his Justice Department can now prosecute states that have decided to legalize recreational and medical marijuana laws. And he wouldn't rescind the coal memo if he wasn't planning to crack down on states. So this is a really bad sign of what's to come for states that have decided to legalize recreational and medical marijuana. However, as Fortune Magazine points out, but by positioning the DOJ to pursue more marijuana prosecutions, Sessions himself did not factor in all relevant considerations. The fact that nearly three fifths of the states have legalized marijuana in some form explicitly shows that marijuana activity is not considered to be a serious crime, much less one that should be deterred through criminal prosecution. So not only is Attorney General Jeff Sessions making himself look foolish, By using the Justice Department's finite resources to crack down on something that states decided to do themselves, but he also is fighting a losing battle because legal marijuana is now a $10 billion industry and sales are expected to double by 2021. So Jeff Sessions has literally nothing to gain from this and everything to lose from this because this is a battle that he's not going to win. But the reason why he's doing this anyway is because he is personally opposed to marijuana. But guess what? We don't care how you feel, Jeff Sessions. Not only do studies show that there are medical benefits to marijuana, but if we want to smoke marijuana, we're adults. We're going to smoke marijuana regardless if you try to crack down on it or not. So my question is, as all of this unfolds, where's the president where's donald trump this is his attorney general so if jeff sessions decides to crack down on states with legal weed then by proxy of jeff sessions donald trump is doing this as well because trump nominated this individual to the justice department and anything he does reflects poorly on donald trump so why hasn't donald trump spoken out about this because donald trump on the campaign trail said that he is okay with states legalizing marijuana
1: legal marijuana colorado one of those states that have legal marijuana under a trump presidency
4: what would you do
2: well medical marijuana i'm for and i'm really a state's person i believe that if the people vote for it that's absolutely the way it should go colorado's an example of that but i do believe medical marijuana and i've seen results i've spoken to people i'm in favor of it and uh as in the case of colorado if people vote for it It's okay. It's states' rights. And
3: that includes recreational marijuana?
2: That includes if they vote for it.
0: So Donald Trump said that when he was on the campaign trail, but now that he's president and his attorney general is doing the opposite of what Donald Trump presumably still wants, why haven't you called him out, Donald Trump? You know you can do that, right? You can speak out. Instead, Donald Trump has chosen to remain silent like the coward that he is. However, unlike Donald Trump states have decided to speak out they're not tucking their tails between their legs like donald trump and they've actually decided to fight back so for example shortly after jeff sessions rescinded the coal memo the vermont house passed a bill to legalize recreational marijuana in an 81 to 63 vote so that was a direct middle finger to jeff sessions make no mistake about it and also governors of states with recreational marijuana like oregon's kate brown has basically iterated the stance that, uh, yeah, it doesn't really matter what Jeff Sessions does, business will continue as usual. In
5: light of the news of uh, Attorney General Sessions' announcement uh, that is literally ripping the rug out from underneath the marijuana industry, in Oregon we're gonna choose to move forward. Uh, We have worked very hard over the last several months to implement the principles of the coal memorandum. And the reason why that is important is because the focus of the Colp Memorandum is to keep our children safe and keep marijuana off the black market. And this has been a coordinated effort with uh, federal, state, and local jurisdictions, and it has been very successful. We have now a thriving marijuana industry. The industry has created over 19,000 jobs uh, throughout the state of Oregon. Uh, Adding over $100 million in revenue uh, to schools, uh, to public safety, and to drug and alcohol treatment in Oregon in the last year and a half, it's absolutely uh, imperative that we have those resources. Um, These are jobs in our underserved communities and communities across Oregon that are really struggling and they're good paying jobs. So it's a thriving economy. These are local businesses that are doing really, really well. Um, This is extremely concerning given the fact that our president has said he wants the states to be the laboratories of democracy, that he wants us uh, to uh, move forward on states' rights issues. And I can think of no better illustration of the laboratory of democracy than our initiative process. Oregonians voted overwhelmingly to legalize marijuana uh, we are implementing the will of the voters here in a way that is uh, successful for the economy
0: now in addition to that Republican Senator from Colorado Cory Gardner which actually comes from the first state to legalize recreational marijuana is now blocking Justice Department nominees and actually called out Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump on the Senate floor over this
9: up until about eight fifty-eight this morning we believed in Colorado that states' rights would be protected. Up until about 8.58, maybe it was 8.55, until Twitter told us otherwise, we believed that the will of Colorado voters would be respected. Why did we believe that? Well, conversations that I had with then-Senator Jeff Sessions prior to his confirmation as Attorney General, what would happen with Colorado's marijuana policy? At the time, prior to his confirmation, then Senator Sessions said that he didn't have any plans to, uh, told me there were no plans to reverse the coal memorandum. Then Senator Sessions told me that marijuana simply wasn't going to be on President Trump's agenda. That it was something that they weren't going to deal with. That's something that President Trump simply wasn't going to focus on. That was back in the spring of 2016. And up until 8.58 this morning, that was the policy. One tweet later, one policy later, a complete reversal of what many of us on the Hill were told before the confirmation, what we had continued to believe the last year and without any notification, conversation or dialogue with Congress, completely reversed. Now perhaps the Department of Justice didn't think this would be a big deal I understand Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Jeff Sessions' opposition to marijuana, of legalization of marijuana. I opposed the legalization of marijuana in Colorado, but this is about a decision by the state of Colorado, and we were told that states' rights would be protected, and not just by the Attorney General, then the nominee to be Attorney General. We were told that by then candidate Donald Trump. In fact, in Colorado, in July of 2016, President Trump was asked this question. When asked if President Trump, then-candidate Trump, would use federal authority to shut down sales of recreational marijuana in states like Colorado, then-candidate Donald Trump said, quote, I wouldn't do that. When asked if he, then-candidate Trump, thinks Colorado should be allowed to do what it's doing, then-candidate Trump said, it's up to the states absolutely. That was was then-candidate Trump's position. I would like to know from the Attorney General, why, what has changed? What has changed President Trump's mind that the coal memorandum would be reversed and rescinded? What has changed the president's mind? Why is Donald Trump thinking differently today about what he promised the people of Colorado in 2016 the reverse course today? What changed? I'd like to know that.
0: So as you can see, even Republicans are speaking out on behalf of legal marijuana, and if you are an enthusiast of marijuana, then this should give you hope. And really, I mean, when 61% of the country now supports legal recreational marijuana, Jeff Sessions is just prolonging the inevitable. Now, the beauty is that Jeff Sessions may have just inadvertently created a situation where congress might be forced to pass a national marijuana legalization law in congress which would be necessary in order to stabilize a gigantic industry that's currently emerging but my question is not just where's donald trump where are the democrats if 61 percent of the country want to legalize recreational marijuana this is a winning issue it's win-win why haven't they've gone on board with this why hasn't the entire party endorsed legal recreational marijuana you can't lose on this issue this is a winning issue that would actually get a lot of libertarian minded republicans to support your party if you vociferously advocate for this so why aren't you hammering jeff sessions and donald trump on this i don't get it this is a winnable issue and democrats have basically chosen to unilaterally disarm they don't want to get involved Well, get involved. Do you not want to win? I mean, the whole point of having a party is to win. And the fact that they haven't all came around to this issue together and decided we are going to be the party of legal marijuana, it blows my mind. It doesn't make any sense. It shows how strategically inept they really are. So look, again, Jeff Sessions, in doing this, he can try all he wants, but... You can't. I mean, once states start legalizing marijuana, when you have so many states with medical marijuana, you're not going to stop what's already happening. The cat's already out of the bag. Marijuana will be legal in all 50 states one day. It's only a matter of time. And unfortunately for Jeff Sessions, he may have just inadvertently sped up that process because Congress may be forced to respond in order to save and protect this industry that will net billions of dollars in tax revenue one day, potentially. So as you all know, Michael Wolff's new book titled Fire and Fury was released this week. And it gives readers an inside account of Donald Trump's administration, and it essentially confirms what we already suspected, that the White House, under the leadership of Donald Trump, is in total disarray. Now, personally, I haven't seen Americans this fired up over a book since the release of the Harry Potter series, but the reason why this book is so incredibly popular and is now selling out everywhere, at least in physical copies, is because it received a lot of free advertising from none other than Donald Trump himself, because he gave this book a huge boost when his lawyers tried to suppress the book's release by threatening to sue the publisher, which then prompted them to actually release it several days earlier, and once it was released, expectedly it became a bestseller. Now, the book would undoubtedly be popular even if Donald Trump didn't inadvertently give it a gigantic push, but... Even Fox News is questioning whether or not Donald Trump might have mishandled this situation and made it even worse for himself.
7: Has the administration um, brought more attention to this book than the media itself?
0: Well, the president, and he's a Queens guy,
3: he's a counterpuncher. When people punch, he punches back, especially in a book like this, which is just such thin garbage.
0: In other words, yes. (laughs) So needless to say, this book has become a huge headache for the president, and as White House correspondent for CNN, Abby Phillip explains, this book is really starting to get to the president. It's really bothering him.
8: Last night, the president really w- had on his mind this book that has roiled his presidency, roiled his administration. Uh, he has not let this issue go uh, after the book was published a few days early, despite his uh, legal threats trying to shut it down. The president wrote in a tweet. Let me read th- that to you, what you had just uh, a moment ago, Michael Wolf, the author of the Book uh, is a total loser who made up stories in order to sell this really boring and untruthful book. He used slop, sloppy Steve Bannon, who cried when he got fired and begged for his job. Now sloppy Steve has been dumped like a dog by almost everyone. Too bad. Sloppy Steve is that new moniker that the president has given his former chief strategist, someone who was incredibly close to this campaign, to his campaign, and also to his administration. Uh, Steve Bannon was was. Uh, reco- recorded in this book uh, making derogatory comments about the president. And afterwards, the president really slammed him in a harsh statement. And that uh, anger clearly has not gone away.
0: So what she's saying is totally believable because Donald Trump keeps tweeting about this book and he keeps tweeting about sloppy Steve, which I think is a hilarious moniker. But um, let's go back to why this book is popular in the first place. So first and foremost, we learned about what Steve Bannon said about Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Russian lawyer. He called it treasonous. And he allegedly told Michael Wolf that, quote, they're going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV, referring, of course, to prosecutors. And additionally, CNN reports Bannon also reportedly told Wolf that special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign's potential ties to Russia is centered on money laundering, saying that the White House is sitting on a beach trying to stop a Category 5 Hurricane, you realize where this is going. This is all about money laundering. Mueller chose senior prosecutor Andrew Weissman first, and he is a money laundering guy, Bannon reportedly said. Their path to fucking Trump goes right through Paul Manafort, Don Jr. and Jared Kushner. It's as plain as the hair on your face. So I mean obviously that's huge. For someone like Steve Bannon, who has been close to Donald Trump during the campaign and his early months as president, you know that to say something like that is It's pretty explosive. Now, in response to Steve Bannon, Donald Trump stated, Steve Bannon has nothing to do with me or my presidency. When he was fired, he not only lost his job, he lost his mind. So, this led to Steve Bannon then issuing an apology to the Trump family, referring to Trump Jr. as a patriot and good person, and he also reiterated that his support for the president is unwavering. Now, unfortunately for Sloppy Steve, the White House actually rejected his apology. But, I mean, besides Besides the Steve Bannon thing, the book gives us so much more insight into other aspects of the Trump presidency. And as Michael Wolff, the author himself, puts it, really, it seems like people within Trump's administration don't really like him all that much.
10: Everybody in this White House, and I keep saying this 100% because it is 100% of the people closest to the president, to, uh, to, the, to Donald Trump, believe that there is something wrong here, something something fundamentally wrong, something that scares them. As a matter of fact, they went from if, if there was if there is any reason they stay in the White House now, it's because they are scared. They believe they have a responsibility to the American people.
0: Now, while I am inclined to believe Michael Wolff, I do find this weird, because if people around Trump don't like him, but they supported him during his campaign. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. The writing was always on the wall. Donald Trump was always a wackadoo crazy person, so the fact that you're only now realizing that, I mean, it shows how stupid really the people around Trump are. So that, to me, is a really weird part about this book that was revealed. Now, the book also reveals that Trump allegedly didn't know who former House Speaker John Boehner was. It also states that Melania Trump was reportedly horrified by Donald Trump's victory and that she cried and not tears of joy. Trump also initially didn't want John Bolton to be the UN ambassador because of his mustache. (laughs) Rupert Murdoch reportedly called Trump an effing idiot, and Trump reportedly referred to then acting Attorney General Sally Yates as the C word. And probably my favorite revelation about this book is how <laughs> a staffer was trying to tell Donald Trump about the Constitution, but they couldn't keep his interest, saying, I got as far as the Fourth Amendment before his finger is pulling down on his lip and his eyes are rolling back in his head. <laughs> You know That's really embarrassing. Now, as someone who loathes Donald Trump, I really, really want everything in this book to be true, but the fact of the matter is that we have to be objective and acknowledge that these are second and third-hand accounts, and a lot of this book largely is based on hearsay. So, we do have to take that into account and we can't just jump on this because it's an easy opportunity to embarrass Donald Trump because I don't think the book is 100% accurate and Trump's administration is vehemently rejecting everything in this book. Trump actually went so far as to deny that Michael Wolf even had access to the White House and this is how Trump's advisor... Stephen Miller describes the book.
1: The book is best understood as a work of very poorly written fiction. The author is a garbage author of a garbage book. The allegations and insinuations in this book, which are are a pure work of fiction, are nothing but a pile of trash through and through. Page after page after page of the book is pure false. I, I see sections of the book where events I participated in are described, and I have firsthand knowledge that as they're described, They're completely and totally fraudulent. So one of the other tragedies of this grotesque work of fiction is its portrayal of the president.
0: The reality is, is the president is a political genius. So you pretty much get the point. Now, we'll go back to that interview in a second, and I'll show you more of that because it's just amazing. But basically to suggest that this book is purely a work of fiction, I think is preposterous. But at the same time, we'd be unreasonable to not acknowledge that there are inaccuracies that have been pointed out. So we were talking
7: before the break about um, some inaccuracies in the book, like, but not comp- like, were you first of all in a rush to get this to print for a lot of reasons?
10: Well, yeah, I mean, this book was reported and written in less than a year. Yeah, okay. So, you know, this so, is, remember, this history is moving pretty fast. Yeah. So
7: your um, your kind of critics here will we'll have some material to work with. There's misspellings. I know, for example, I'll just speak to the part where we are characterized in it, and um, there was a scene where... Ivanka wanted to talk to Donald about women, and he kept saying, what, what, what? And then you say in the book that Ivanka shattered him. It was actually me. I said, Donald, women. And I had to make an hourglass to show him women. That was the only way he could understand the word woman. And so there's inaccuracies like that. That I guess. Do you worry which that your point? critics? Which point? I'm not
10: even sure which 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 point was that.
7: That was in, in the, the at the lunch at the White at, House. At, at the
10: lunch. Well, but
11: you know, the, the but but the bigger point is those.
7: Do your critics the, run with that? The, yeah, they run
11: with these little specific things. But getting oh. getting a part of a story wrong here or getting something else. And some, and sometimes you know
10: you know you're dependent on your sources at, there, and right. sometimes your sources. Right. Now I don't want to say who my source was in that particular okay um, right. thing except that but sometimes the sources get it
0: yeah a little yeah. off okay so on one hand we shouldn't take everything in this book as gospel because as you saw right there there's inaccuracies, and I do trust Mika Brzezinski. But on the other hand, to suggest that it's fiction is also absurd. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but leans more towards Michael Wolff. I think that Michael Wolff probably rushed to get this to sale because, I mean, let's face it, he knew he'd be a multimillionaire once this book came out. So I get it. You, you rushed. Human error is a problem. But of course, when you have hearsay and second and third accounts of people talking about Donald Trump, I mean, of course- there are going to be problems with this book. But again, overall, I mean, Donald Trump's administration is essentially maintaining that everything in this book is made up. But that's absurd because, one, Steve Bannon wouldn't have apologized to the president if the things he said weren't true, and certainly Donald Trump wouldn't be as angry with Steve Bannon and wouldn't have called him Sloppy Steve if he didn't believe that Michael Wolff was told these things by Steve Bannon. So Donald Trump essentially is contradicting himself here. Second of all, Trump wouldn't have moved to suppress the book If it was fictional, he probably just wouldn't care about it if it was all made up. Third, and finally, I think the most important point is that the revelations in this book aren't that surprising. They're right in line with what we've come to expect based on various leaks from the White House. So, these aren't things that are surprising. So, the book probably isn't 100% accurate, but it's certainly not fiction, and knowing that Donald Trump obviously is a pathological liar, for him to say it's fiction means that, yeah, there's there's probably definitely truth to it. <laughs> so, we should be careful here. And question some of the revelations and not lose our objectivity because we have an opportunity to embarrass Donald Trump. If you want to embarrass Donald Trump, all you have to do is wait a day or two and there will be several more opportunities to embarrass him. Now, I want to get back to the interview I discussed with Stephen Miller and Jake Tapper because even though he was there to shut down some of the claims made by Michael Wolff in this book, that interview went completely off the rails. And it was absolutely glorious to watch. So I will leave you with that. Enjoy. The only Many person the who's called himself a genius Congress, in the last
4: week is the president,
1: but the, the, which the, because happens to be a true statement. Okay, it's self-made billionaire who revolutionized reality
4: TV and, and who I'm has sure changed the course he's of watching our politics. And he's happy that you said that. But, but you know, Jay, you my point,
1: no, no, you can Mike, be condescending. I'm and, not being no, condescending. I'm no, trying no, to get to the point be, that you,
4: Steve Bannon. You can
1: be condescending. That was a snide remark. You're sure he's watching? and He's happy. Let me tell you something. Why is that? Your network. You can look. You can be as condescending as you want, as part of your mo. But listen, the you can
4: have twenty four seven. I have no idea why you you're attacking have, me. Well, my, I'll explain you. My, 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 my point, point is, I'll, is I'll tell you why I'm Steve attacking Bannon, you. Steve you can Bannon, have, Jake, you can have a twenty four seven. push the president's travel ban.
1: Look, he helped. He I, helped. I'm, pull, pull I'm out. so glad you brought that up because just, that's one of the fake Steven, news Steven, items in the book. Stephen, I would happen to know better than you would, Jake about the, how the travel ban was written. Let c me just, c, ban, c ban didn't push the travel if ban. If you would let me... c, c would let me. If you let me ask no, this question. No, because you have... You get 24 hours of negative, anti-Trump, hysterical coverage on this network okay. that led in recent weeks to some spectacularly think, embarrassing false reporting from your network. I think the from viewer viewers network. right now can ascertain no, who's being hysterical. No, the viewers are entitled my, to have my, three months of the truth. Why don't you just give me three minutes to tell you the truth about Donald Trump that I know and then all of our campaign because staff know? Because it's knows, my show and, and I, I don't, don't
4: want, all, want to do that. So, here's well, my question. No, but this isn't a Stephen, and I Stephen, have a right to settle speak. down settle and, down look, calm down Jake I have a question for you about issues but I think the american people deserve to have two
1: or three minutes of the truth and we've let you we no, let you no, talk no no here's the truth I travel with Donald Trump all across the country and the world I would I would be with the president on a campaign plane with a rally in 20 minutes and he would be You've able already to already made come this up, point Stephen He'd be able to come
4: up with material
1: yeah, you've, already made this, you've already, eye, made,
4: you've already said that. We let you say that at the top. At the top.
1: It was a huge embarrassment for your network. Stephen.
4: Just like the huge embarrassment you had when
1: you got the Comey testimony wrong. Stephen, I'm trying to get to the issue of the proper fitness, accounting. which a lot of people well, are questioning. I'm getting to the issue of your no, fitness. I was, I was booked to talk about the very issues I'm just describing, and you're not even asking about them, because they're not interesting facts to you.
4: That's not true. I have plenty of questions on immigration. There, you've there, attempted to filibuster by talking about your flight to the No, I'm not. I want to ask you a question. because No, don't be condescending. Jake. Jake. Stephen. Jay, the president and the White the House. The The president and the White House. The
1: reason why I want to talk about the president's experiences, what I've seen with him traveling to meet dozens of foreign leaders, with his incredible work. Okay,
4: you're not answering major, the questions. No, I understand. So you have
1: 24 hours a day of anti trump material. You're, and being, you're not going to give three minutes for the American people I to get hear, the real experience you, of you, Donald there's Trump.
4: There's one viewer that you care about right now, and you're being obsequious. No, you're being a factotum no, in order being, to please him, okay? No, and I think I've wasted enough of my you know viewers. Time. I, you know who Thank I wasted. You, care about? As Republicans hey, Jake, you know for who As Republican lawmakers called for Attorney General about? Jeff Sessions to resign, in a major reversal, Democrats are now coming to his
0: defense. What changed? So there's been a lot of explosive revelations to come out of Michael Wolf's book about Donald Trump, Fire and Fury. But to me, I think the most disturbing one is how Donald Trump was initially in favor of Medicare for All, like he indicated he was during the campaign, but... He was quickly talked out of it once he was actually elected. So John Quealy of Common Dreams reports, amid the explosive anecdotal accounts contained in the new book Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolff, is an exchange between the president and top aides in which Trump reportedly demanded to know why can't Medicare simply cover everybody? Now, in this excerpt of the book, Wolf writes, Trump had little or no interest in the central Republican goal of repealing Obamacare. The details of the contested legislation were, to him, particularly boring. His attention would begin wandering from the first words of a policy discussion. He would have been able to enumerate few of the particulars of Obamacare other than expressing glee about the silly Obama pledge that everyone could keep his or her doctor, and he certainly could not make any kind of meaningful distinction, positive or negative, between the healthcare system before Obamacare and the one after. Now, a lot of people are questioning the accounts of Michael Wolf's book, but I find this particular segment incredibly agreeable because... Donald Trump has consistently indicated, I mean, if he's been consistent about anything, he's repeatedly stated that he is liberal when it comes to health care. So, for example, in 1999, he was on Larry King Live and he stated that he is liberal when it comes to the issue of healthcare.
2: I'm a registered Republican. I'm a pretty conservative guy. I'm somewhat liberal on social issues, especially health care, etc. Especially healthcare, etc.
0: Now, in that clip, he simply alluded to the fact that he's more liberal on healthcare. He didn't explicitly at least say Medicare for All, but in this next clip, which is a lot more recent, he overtly signaled support for Medicare for All.
2: Everybody's got to be covered. This is an unrepublican thing for me to say, because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25%, they can't afford private, but universal health care, I am going to take care of everybody. I'm, I don't care if it costs me votes or not. Everybody's going to be taken care of much better than they're taking care of now. The uninsured person right, is going to be taken care they're of. They're going to be How? taken care of. How? I would make a deal with existing hospitals to take care of people. And- You know what? This is probably... Make a deal. Who pays for
0: it? The government's going to pay for it, but we're going to save so much money on the other side. So Medicare for All is such a no-brainer that even a right-wing simpleton like Donald Trump can grasp the importance of it. It's a no-brainer. Everyone should be in favor of Medicare for All because when you look at countries with single-payer or some sort of universal healthcare systems, you can see it's working perfectly. So the question is, what happened? Why did Donald Trump go into the White House supporting Medicare for All, but then changed his mind almost immediately well kimberly leonard of the washington examiner explains the book goes on to say that trump wasn't interested in the details of the legislation to repeal and replace obamacare house speaker paul ryan and tom price a republican congressman from georgia at the time met with trump to arrange for the law's repeal ryan convinced trump that repeal of the law would pave the way for tax reform and an infrastructure package During the meeting, Trump also agreed to make Price Secretary of Health and Human Services, the book said. Price resigned in September after an investigation found he had spent $1 million on charter jets for travel rather than fly commercial. Trump went along with the plan to support repealing Obamacare, the book said, because he was, quote, simply trying to get out from under something he didn't especially care about and had likely never had a meaningful discussion in his life about health insurance. The late Roger Ailes, who was chairman and CEO of Fox News, told Wolf, no one in the country or on Earth has given less thought to health insurance than Donald. So essentially, Donald. Donald Trump knew deep down that Medicare for All was the correct response to America's healthcare system, but since he was bored and wanted to get out of that meeting, he just basically agreed with everything Paul Ryan was saying because that would cut the meeting short. So, rather than getting in there and fighting for a policy that would save lives, he decided, meh, I want to I wanna leave this meeting, I'm bored, I don't want to hear about t- uh, healthcare, please shut up. And that's what happened. And then shortly after that, we all know that he began towing the party line when it comes to Medicare for All.
2: Single payer will bankrupt our country because it's more than we take in for just healthcare. So single payer is never going to work and it will be horrible, horrible healthcare where you wait online for weeks.
0: Now, besides that clip there, once Bernie Sanders introduced his Medicare for All bill, Donald Trump actually took to the Twitter and threatened to veto it if it ever passed. And he also called single-payer a curse on the United States and its people. So, uh, there you have it. Donald Trump seemingly supported Medicare for All because, again, it's that's an easy thing to um, agree to. All you have to do is Apply simple logic and you'll quickly realize that Medicare for All is the right way to go. But he decided that rather than fighting for the lives of Americans, he wanted to get out of a meeting and just agreed to um, repeal Obamacare instead. And Donald Trump was a pushover. He was easily talked out of it. So I think that this really lends credence to the idea that Donald Trump wasn't running because he cared about the American people. He was running because he was a bored billionaire that didn't know what to do with his time. So he figured, you know, he just wants to be the president and he never expected to win. He was probably figuring that he'd run sell a couple of books off of it, maybe launch a television network, and that'd be the end of it. But he actually now has to do the job. He has to put in time to be the president. And being the president, occupying the White House, is a lot different than the idea of you running for president and all the glory and fame that might come along with it. So, that's what we're dealing with. Someone who really doesn't care about the American people and is disinterested in an issue that affects millions of Americans. I mean, Thousands of people die in this country every single year because they don't have health insurance. Thousands of people go bankrupt because they have health insurance and in many instances they have a medical emergency and a procedure that they need is not covered under their current health insurance plan. But he doesn't care. This is a story that I think is really disturbing and it's an excerpt from the book that I think should be talked about a lot more. But, you know... Everyone is talking about the more gossipy elements of the book and I get it it's entertaining. Me too, I talked about that too. But to show how big of a child Donald Trump is especially when it comes to an issue that's so important that you just can't keep him interested in it. It's it's just downright sickening. I'll say it again, I'm absolutely thrilled that Roy Moore lost the Alabama Senate race. Uh, because I would have voted for anyone besides Roy Moore, I literally would have voted for a turd over Roy Moore. But with that being said, just because Roy Moore was such a monster doesn't mean that his opponent who won Doug Jones is a gem because more and more with every thing I hear about Doug Jones, I get more disappointed in him because you think that. As someone with a unique opportunity to represent people from Alabama and show them what a true progressive can do for them, he's really showing that he's going to get in there and basically keep that seat warm for a Republican in a couple of years. So, I mean, there's really nothing to be excited about when it comes to Doug Jones. The one thing that is exciting about Doug Jones is that he's not Roy Moore. And in an interview with Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe, I think that Doug Jones proved this point yet again that he really stands for nothing and watch what he says here, because Joe Scarborough is going to tell him that he's probably going to be pulled in different directions when he gets into Congress. And he even talks about how donors might try to influence Doug Jones. Now, watch what Doug Jones has to say about that. Now, you're
11: going to be pulled, obviously, by a lot of people in Washington D.C., a lot of people who contributed to you, helped you get elected. Right. You're going to be pulled about as far left as <laughs> as possible. I know you are who you are, but uh, as you go around and town hall meetings, how much are you gonna to listen to the people of Alabama and make sure that you're not in lockstep with them but 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 that you actually are a United States Senator that
6: represents the values right. of the people of Alabama. Well, I think that that's critical. I've I've made a promise during the campaign. Uh, I said it yesterday after I was sworn in uh, that I think a role of the senator is as much of two roles. You've got to listen uh, and and learn from your constituents.
0: Now, that last part about listening and learning is totally agreeable. But what I do take issue with is the first part of that interview where Joe Scarborough says, you're going to be pulled, obviously, by a lot of people in Washington, D.C., a lot of people who contributed to your campaign. And Doug Jones replies by saying...
11: Right. People who contributed to you, helped you get elected. Right.
0: That, to me, is pretty telling. Because as soon as he said you're going to be pulled in a lot of different ways, specifically by people who donated to your campaign, that's when Doug Jones decided to chime in and say, yes, I agree. So, in other words, he's acknowledging that donors influence him. And if your donors influence you, then your constituents, their voices are going to be drowned out. Now, is it the case that he could have certainly just said yes in order to be agreeable during the conversation with Joe Scarborough, even if he doesn't necessarily agree with it? Sure, it's possible. Is it the case that Joe Scarborough was specifically referring to Doug Jones's, uh smaller contributors, the grassroots donations? Sure, but when we're watching cable news shows and they refer to donors, 9.9 times out of 10, they're referring to the big boys, the multi-billion dollar corporations that donate to these politicians. Now, without taking too many conclusions away from Doug Jones's quick response here, you know, it could be benign, but it does give us reason to pause and suspect whether or not he will be listening to his big dollar donors. But in this next clip, Joe Scarborough asked him where he would be willing to work with Republicans on. Now, I don't know why you would ask that. Ask him where he'd be willing to work with Democrats on or what his policy goals are. But Joe Scarborough asked the question nonetheless, and he didn't answer because that would make him look bad. He already has a lot of progressives pissed off at him. And I mean, (laughs) this, this happened. I mean, we've been really disenfranchised by him before. He even uh, won because he's just the boring candidate that really offers nothing. Uh, But... Watch what he says there because he instead tries to prove that he is liberal in some ways. But I wasn't too um, intrigued by what he had to say. Can you name a a
11: major issue where you think you're going to be able to work with uh, Richard Shelby and other Republicans in the Senate uh, to do something that may not be popular with your Democratic base, may not be popular with Democrats in Washington, but will be more popular with people back in your home state?
6: You know, I don't know if there's one specific issue that stands out right now. You know, this, you know, Washington's kind of almost the, you know, what's the issue de jure? Every day there's something that new uh, that pops up. I want to get involved in the CHIP program and try to see if we can get that funded. It means a lot to 150,000 kids in Alabama. I know there's going to be infrastructure bills that come up over the spring and the summer uh, to try to work with. The one thing about Senator Shelby, I've known him for so long, ever since he was a state senator in Tuscaloosa uh, and I was at the University of Alabama. Uh, So we're going to work well together and try to do the things uh, for the state, uh, whether it's on the budget and trying to bring uh, the military money into Alabama like we've had such a success at in the last few years. Um, I think there's a number of things, but as we sit here today and we're going forward, you know, it's going to see, we're just going to have to see what pops up because every day is new around here, every week is new
0: yeah, we're going to have to agree to disagree because the same issues that affected us yesterday still affect us today. And I can guarantee you that they're going to also affect us tomorrow as well. So it's not just that a new issue pops up every day. I mean, we've been talking about things that we need for decades now, Medicare for all. For years now, we've been talking about how we need a $15 minimum wage. We've needed criminal justice reform in this country since forever. So to suggest that, new issues come up every day in congress and you kind of just got to go with the flow that that's pretty worrying to me that that's troubling because that shows that Doug Jones has no real agenda he's going into the senate with no real goals now since he's being criticized by progressives he doesn't want to make it seem as if he's going to go full Republican as soon as he gets to the Senate. I mean, certainly, we all expect him to work with Republicans. He stated that he's going to work with Republicans, but I think this interview, you know, was him trying to extend an olive branch to progressives, and he said that, you know, if he wants to work with Republicans on something, it's not going to be reforming social safety net programs because we all know what they want to do. They want to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. He said, well, you know, I'd like to work with them on something like CHIP. And that's it. Now, CHIP is great. I love that he said that. I certainly hope that Democrats and Republicans will work together to pass CHIP. But CHIP, in general, is a no-brainer. Supporting CHIP doesn't make you liberal, it doesn't make you conservative, it just makes you a reasonable person. It's such a common-sense policy idea that the default position for all politicians should be that they support CHIP. And until they tell us otherwise... We should expect them to always renew Chip when it comes up. But what he's telling us here, in not so many words, is that he's not really going to get into the Senate and fearlessly argue in favor of policy ideas that would benefit his constituents. He's going to get in there and only support policy ideas that marginally improved the lives of people in the United States and Alabama. In other words, he's not going to do anything. Now, I already know what you guys are going to say in the comment section. Mike, you are being way too harsh on him. I mean, give him at least a couple of months. Give this guy a chance before you criticize him. And yes, it does seem like (laughs) I'm being overly nitpicky. I'm aware that I may come off that way, you know, with this video. But the problem is that if we don't keep constant pressure on Democrats— We're never going to get anything from them. We're not going to get a single policy concession unless we are relentless and we yell at them every single day because that's how this party is. Doug Jones is most likely going to get there and be nothing more than a spineless Democrat that doesn't push for anything, that we have to basically drag his feet to get him to support any policy that's even marginally progressive. We shouldn't have to do that. If you're a Democrat, then you should just support policies that benefit the working class, but the fact that we even have to be this nitpicky on Democratic politicians, that should say less about me and more about the state of politics. Because yes, I understand that I'm very nitpicky and my standards are very high, but if we don't keep the pressure on these politicians constantly, understand that you are guaranteeing yourself nothing in return. So anyone in Alabama who voted for Doug Jones, if you don't call his office every single day and demand policy concessions from him and demand that he supports Medicare for all, then you're not going to get it. So yes, I totally get that I seem like an asshole right now and I'm just looking for everything to gripe about with regard to Doug Jones. But the problem is that in the state of politics today where big money rules everything, I'm hypersensitive to everything these politicians say and we have to speak truth to power. If you are a senator, you have a unique opportunity to push for policies that would not only change people's lives, but save the lives of Americans and save lives around the world as well. So you have a tremendous, unfathomable amount of responsibility as a United States senator. And Doug Jones has given us every indication that he's going to bungle this unique and huge opportunity that he has. And it's frustrating So, I get why people may think that I'm coming off as someone who's just too nitpicky, who isn't even giving him a chance, but I hope that Doug Jones proves me wrong. I will be excited to come out and say, look, I stand corrected. He ended up being progressive. And I'll give him credit where credit is due. But unfortunately, there's a lot of red flags when it comes to Doug Jones, and simply not being Roy Moore is not enough. You're elected. Now represent your constituents. So, Kirsten Gillibrand is an individual that is widely recognized as a corporate Democrat by progressives. And this is because when you look at her campaign contributors, they're pretty problematic. She takes millions of dollars from the big banks and Wall Street. She has a super PAC. So, there's a lot of negative aspects about Kirsten Gillibrand. However, lately, it does seem as though she's saying all the right things. So, in an appearance, with CNN, she was asked to cite the leader of the Democratic Party, and her answer was actually surprising for a corporate Democrat. Who's the leader of the Democratic Party right now?
5: I think you have your congressional leaders, of course, Um, but I think, you know, Senator Sanders is out there talking about things that has uh, big ideas like Medicare for all. I think Elizabeth Warren's out there talking about a rigged system that we desperately need to fix for working families. And for each of us who are running for reelection, such as myself and 24 other Senate Democrats, um, we're in our states talking about our vision and what we want to change and how we want to make a difference and how we want to make the economy grow.
0: So certainly she's 100% correct here. And she's proving day by day that she is a lot more politically astute than other corporate Democrats like Cory Booker, who try to pretend to be progressive but keep walking in on political landmines. So With Kirsten Gillibrand, not only is she saying the right things, but she's correct here. And what she's doing here is actually pretty smart because she's cultivating legitimacy among the Democratic Party's progressive wing, who she needs if she does decide to run for president in 2020, which she most likely will. And she even went so far as to co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Now, these are all good things. She's responding to progressives in a positive way, and I don't want to be too down on her because I I do want to be an individual that does take yes for an answer. So if she's gonna be on our side and do the right things, then I'm gonna embrace her at least to a certain point. The problem with Kirsten Gillibrand is that if we're being real here, she does a great job at talking the talk, but again, as I alluded to earlier she is not walking the walk. And when you dig a bit deeper, you'll quickly realize that she's not as progressive as she wants us to think she is. So for example, there's a substantial amount of dark money that is financing her campaign. She's taken a combined 7.6 million in super PAC contributions overall, and a plethora of unsavory organizations have contributed to her super PACs, including Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone. So she's financially tied to Wall And if she were to ever become president, you can guarantee that they'd expect a return on that investment. And as Barack Obama illustrated, she'll most likely deliver. She also received money from pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer. And Pfizer, after they just took a gigantic tax cut from the Republican Party, they announced that they would be ending research to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So that's what they do once they get money from us. They end vital research that we need. Now, additionally, when you look at Kirsten Gillibrand's FEC filings, she's already raised nearly $10 million for her 2018 re-election campaign alone. So the point in bringing up The problems Kirsten Gillibrand has is not to demonize her or vilify her. I'm glad that she is seemingly trying to get on our good side. That's a good thing. That's a positive thing. And I do believe in positive reinforcement. However, we do have to have a nuanced discussion about corporate Democrats. We can't just be smitten by any little thing they say. I want action, real action. Co-sponsoring Medicare for All is a huge step in the right direction. But will she vote for Medicare for All when the time comes? I mean, what we've witnessed in the past from Democrats like Barack Obama is that they say a lot of great things, but behind closed doors, they're willing to sell out immediately. In fact, a lot of Democrats who claim to be progressive already sold out, or they might be spineless. So, for example, Sherrod Brown hasn't co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, and we have Brian Schatz, who did co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, but after doing so, he came out and condemned the idea of Medicare for All, and he sponsored his own bill that would establish a public option. So, co-sponsoring, that's basically the bare minimum that politicians do when it comes to progressive policies, but I actually want to see them Walk the walk. So even though Kirsten Gillibrand is saying all the right things, and I absolutely commend her for that, it's time that we see some action from Democrats. Really put in the work to win over progressives, because with the way we've been screwed over by the Democratic Party, we're not just willing to accept anyone who says nice things to us. You've got to show us, not tell us, what you're willing to do to fight for our ideals. And our ideas are incredibly popular. $15 minimum wage, criminal justice reform, immigration reform, Medicare for all, net neutrality, ending the wars. These are things that the American people want, so it should be easy for you to get on board with this issue. So credit to Kirsten Gillibrand for saying the right thing. She's right. Bernie Sanders is the de facto leader of the Democratic Party, but if she wants to win us over and if her colleagues like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, which is a joke, want to win us over... Show us, don't just tell us. Currently, President Donald Trump and the Republicans are in talks with Democrats to come up with a legislative solution to DACA after Trump decided to unilaterally kill the program in 2017. Now, up until this point, President Trump was basically playing hardball with Democrats and saying he's not going to sign any legislation pertaining to DACA unless it includes funding for the border wall. So much for having Mexico pay for the wall, right? But he's basically saying that if they don't approve of the border wall, then they don't get DACA. However, in a recent meeting between Diane Feinstein and other Republicans, and some Democrats too, it seemed as though Trump was in fact surprisingly willing to pass a clean DACA bill. And I think, and
7: I don't know how you would feel about this, but I'd like to ask the question, what about a clean DACA bill now, and uh, with a commitment that we go into a comprehensive immigration reform procedure like we did back? or oh, I remember when Kennedy was here, and well, it was really a major, major effort. And. Uh, it was a great disappointment that it went nowhere.
6: nowhere.
2: Uh, I have no problem. I, I think that's basically what Dick has said. We're going to come out with DACA. We're going to do DACA. And then we can start immediately on the phase two, which would be comprehensive. Well, would you be agreeable that? Yeah, I would like Yeah, I would like Mr. to do that. Go
8: ahead.
2: Oh, I think a lot of people would like to see that. But I think we have to do DACA first. Mr. President, you, you need to be clear, though. I think what Senator Feinstein is asking here, when we talk about just DACA, we don't want to be back here two years later. You have to have security, as the Secretary would tell you. But I think that's what she's saying. No, I think, no, no. well, no, no. think no, she's saying something I'm
7: different.
2: I, I think Mr. I'm thinking you're saying DACA without security. Are you talking about security as well?
7: Well, I, I think if, if we have some meaningful, comprehensive uh, immigration reform, that's really where the security goes. And if we could get the DACA bill, because March is coming, And people are
0: losing their status every day. So this video has me really conflicted because on one hand, I can't help but think that Donald Trump is trying to cultivate legitimacy among the American people after his approval rating continues to tank month after month. I think he's filming this to show people not only that he he cares about us in some way, but also that he's willing to compromise and work with Democrats and pass a clean DACA bill. But at the same time, any time I've given Donald Trump the benefit of the doubt, he's proven me wrong. So I don't want to give him too much credit before he deserves it. And furthermore, let me remind you that he's the one that decided to kill DACA anyway. So I don't think it's fair to give someone credit for fixing a problem they've created, but nonetheless, this is the state of American politics in 2018. And furthermore, Democrats even though it's the case that they have been advocating on behalf of DREAMers. I mean, you saw Diane Feinstein there. That's the individual who's representing people. I mean, people's lives are at stake here. Millions of people's lives are at stake here. DREAMers need DACA. So, I don't— <laughs> This is no time to be tepid and to be soft-spoken, and politely ask Donald Trump to get on board. I mean, certainly, don't push him and aggravate him if he's willing to speak with you. But, I mean, Democrats really, up until this point— I think they've essentially rolled over and died for Republicans. I mean, we have Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer sending mixed signals, according to Ross story, about whether or not they're able to strike a deal with Donald Trump. But this is something that you can easily hammer Republicans for. They killed DACA, and if they don't get a solution to it, then that's their fault. They take all the blame, but I don't even necessarily care about this political football that they could throw back and forth and who's going to be held accountable. What I care about is making sure DACA is passed because this is something that will dramatically affect the lives of so many people. People who deserve to be here. People who didn't come here on their own. They were brought here when they were children by their parents. And they deserve to not only stay here, but to become citizens. And there's even talks that Donald Trump may approve of a pathway to citizenship. So another thing that strikes me about this meeting is that it's in direct conflict with what Donald Trump said on the campaign trail because he was very anti-immigrant. He still is very anti-immigrant. So... To say something that would piss off his base, who is hellbent on making sure that every single undocumented immigrant is deported from the country, I mean, I don't know what's going on here. But whatever it is, I'm being cautiously optimistic, and I'm hoping that Donald Trump, the Republicans, and Democrats come together and do the right thing and pass a clean bill for DACA. I mean, it's very rare nowadays that we actually just see a bill that contains one policy. I mean, almost with everything that passes, there's always some stipulation or something attached attached to it. I mean, you saw with the tax bill how they included a repeal of the individual mandate to the Affordable Care Act. I mean, you never get something that's just clean. But Donald Trump, in this video, he's saying that he would sign a bill that, uh, Basically, reinstates DACA, a clean bill.
2: What about a clean DACA bill now? Uh, I have no problem. I, I think that's basically what Dick is saying.
0: And to add even more confusion into an already complex and convoluted story, a U.S. district judge just struck down part of Donald Trump's DACA policy. So the Washington Post reports a key part of Trump's crackdown is the decision to end the Obama era deferred action for childhood arrivals program, which the president and his supporters called an egregious example of executive overreach. That effort was appended late Tuesday when U.S. District Judge William Alsup in San Francisco said the nearly 690,000 DACA recipients must retain their work permits and protection from deportation while a lawsuit challenging the decision to end the program moves forward. Dreamers struggled to make sense of the ruling on Wednesday. Initially, they celebrated the injunction in a blitz of phone calls and text messages, but it quickly became clear that this was not the victory they wanted. Lawyers said the lawsuit and perhaps the injunction could drag on for years and could also be appealed by the Justice Department, which spokesman Devin O'Malley said looks forward to vindicating its position in further litigation. The Department of Homeland Security did not say whether it would begin renewing work permits to an order from ALSUP to do so, and provided no guidance on its website, which includes a message in red letters, DACA is ending. The ruling offers a temporary window without a permanent solution, said Marcel Garcia, 27, a DACA recipient who works as a chef at a Baltimore restaurant and has been saving and building up credit with hopes of opening his own restaurant someday. This is going to be a continual cycle of protests, marches, civil disobedience so in the end it'd be nice if dreamers had at least a little bit of stability because i mean they've only been in this country since they were children and i think that they deserve it at a minimum there's currently a looming investigation into jane sanders and whether or not she committed bank fraud when she was the president of a college in burlington vermont now i've Talked about before how this is nothing more than a political witch hunt that was initiated by a Donald Trump supporter who actually was the chair of his campaign. He is part of the Vermont Republican Party, and he just doesn't like Bernie Sanders. This is a tactic that he's used on political opponents before. So Brady Tonesig contends that Jane Sanders supplied a bank with misleading information on a loan application Uh, that she submitted on behalf of the college she was president of because she really wanted to get this loan, so she overestimated the amount of pledges she would receive from the school's donors. That's what he's contending. This isn't a case wherein Jane Sanders is being accused of committing bank fraud to personally enrich herself. She was doing this on behalf of the school, and again, the evidence... It's not really there as far as we know. But this hasn't stopped mainstream media outlets from smearing Bernie Sanders and Jane Sanders. And the reason why Bernie Sanders is looped into this investigation as well is because Brady Tonzig, the individual who, again, initiated this investigation, alleged that Bernie Sanders used his power and position as a United States senator to put pressure on the bank to um, push for this loan and approve this loan. So there's no evidence, again, for this. But the Vermont publication VT Digger actually published an article that essentially made up facts about the story in order to make us believe that the story and the investigation in general got a lot more serious. And even though it is serious, what they said was incorrect. So, Paul Heinz of Seven Days Reports an advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders' family is disputing a report that federal authorities impaneled a grand jury in connection with a long-running investigation into a 2010 land deal orchestrated by his wife, Jane O'Mara Sanders. In a story published Sunday, vtdigger.org reported that the probe had progressed to the point that federal prosecutors had convened a grand jury, a step the news outlet suggested meant the feds were seeking indictments. Authorities have spent two years investigating whether during Omira Sanders' tenure as president of Burlington College, the now-defunct institution overstated pledged donations to secure a bank loan. Former Burlington College board member Robin Lloyd told VT Digger that she testified before a grand jury last October at the federal courthouse in Burlington. She said that Paul Vandegraaff, who heads the criminal division in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Vermont, questioned her for an hour about the college's attempts to secure pledges to buy a $10 million campus. In a statement issued to Seven Days following publication of the VT Digger story, Sanders family spokesman Jeff Weaver cast doubt on it. We have absolutely no reason to believe that there was a grand jury in panel to examine Burlington College, Jane Sanders, or any aspect of Dr. Sanders' service as president of Burlington College, said Weaver, who has previously served as the senator's chief of staff and campaign manager. As best we can tell, the current news reports are simply recycling an account of a government interview of a witness from several months ago. Nothing new here. And I understand that Jeff Weaver is someone who... A lot of people would view as a biased source since he's close to the Sanders family, but he's right here. There's no evidence that indictments are imminent. None. Now, since VT Digger clearly misrepresented the facts of this case in a pretty substantial way, they had to basically change a ton of details about the article. So, they removed the word impaneled, which was cited multiple times. They changed the title from Grand Jury Impaneled in Burlington College Case to Updated. Grand Jury Takes Sworn Testimony in Burlington College Case. They also had to include Jeff Weaver's statement. They slapped on a big editor's note at the beginning and a notice that they issued a correction at the bottom. So, I mean, For a VT digger, this is incredibly embarrassing. This is especially embarrassing for that journalist because it just shows that journalists are willing to jump on any news story, even if they have to embellish a little, if it means they get to smear Bernie Sanders. And this isn't the first time A news outlet exaggerated or downright fabricated claims about Bernie Sanders and this investigation uh, in particular because last July, I actually talked about how the Washington Post did something similar. They published an article implying that the investigation took a really serious turn when really... Nothing really changed besides uh, a request for documents. They decided to opportunistically publish a story surrounding the investigation and shortly after it was published, the main premise of the article was disproven. So, they published an article talking about how prosecutors in this case wanted to subpoena Jane before a grand jury and potentially even Bernie, but the prosecutor only decided to request documents instead. The problem with that is it's completely false. The grand jury never made a decision between documents and Jane. They only had asked for the documents to begin with. So, in their editor's note, they state an earlier version of this story quoted James C. Foley Jr., an attorney for an official with a Vermont bonding agency, as saying that his client was initially called to appear before a grand jury, but that prosecutors later agreed that documents alone would be sufficient. Foley clarified late Monday, however, that the grand jury subpoena required only that documents be turned over. The story has been updated. So, if Jane Sanders isn't actually being... Called to appear before a grand jury, or if they hadn't even considered that they wanted to call her to have her appear before the grand jury, then they really have no story here. So after they had to issue that retraction, this is the new news that uh, they were left with. They report a federal investigation of a land deal led by Jane Sanders, the wife and political advisor of Senator Bernie Sanders, has accelerated in recent months, with prosecutors hauling off more than a dozen boxes of records from the Vermont college she once ran and calling a state official to provide evidence for a grand jury, according to interviews and documents. So the big news is that the grand jury is requesting documents. That's not news. That's not a story. In any probe, of course it's the case that they're going to need documents. But nonetheless, the title of the article is Federal Prosecutors Step Up the Probe because they want you to think that this is getting more serious. And while the case is actually serious, nobody is surprised that the grand jury is requesting documents. Are you kidding me? Uh, And it's not just that. You know, the retraction itself is a problem, but there's more to this article that I take issue with. So they don't talk about the entirety of the issue so they conveniently leave out really important aspects of the story so they mention brady tonzing twice who is the individual who initiated this lawsuit he petitioned the justice department to investigate jane sanders but they made zero mentions about the role of brady tonzing in the vermont republican party and how he's accused Countless public officials of corruption under frivolous and false pretenses. That's a huge component of the story because it sheds light on the motivations of the individual who initiated this investigation in the first place. How could you leave out that component of the story? It's huge. It's everything. Now, if you thought that the Washington Post was biased, which they are, well, VT Digger didn't even mention Brady Tonzik's name one time. Now, if you're talking about the Bernie Sanders and Jane Sanders investigation, you cannot not bring him up because it provides you with crucial context that you need. This is the definition of a political witch hunt started by a supporter of Donald Trump who is a Republican, who is part of the Vermont Republican Party, who is an opponent to Bernie Sanders who wants to handicap Bernie Sanders' campaign ahead of Trump's 2020 re-election effort. I've said this so many times. If you really want to critique Bernie, then you need to look at the policy positions for the time being, because there's no evidence that this investigation is going to go anywhere. Is it serious? Of course it's serious, and we have to take it seriously. We have to treat it as though it's a serious issue, but with that being said, You can't be misleading because you want this investigation to be more serious, because it is, and that goes both ways. I'm not going to downplay the significance of this investigation, because even though I think it's a political witch hunt, it's still serious, of course. But what is really important is the objective truth, and you can't get there without the facts, or you can't get there by misrepresenting the facts. So whenever you hear an article about this, then I think it is incumbent on the journalist who's reporting on it to discuss the origins of this case and how it was initiated by Brady Tonzig, who is a Republican. He ran Donald Trump's Republican campaign and probably will want to run Donald Trump's Republican campaign in Vermont again in 2020. He has a vested interest in sparing Bernie. That's what this is about, and we have to be upfront about it. Back in 2017, President Donald Trump pardoned Joe Arpaio, who was the sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona. Now, this is an individual who is a criminal, who is overtly racist, but yet Donald Trump decided to pardon him. Now, Joe Arpaio isn't just now free, but he has an announcement to the chagrin of most normal Americans. He's running to be a United States senator and now represent the state of Arizona, and he is presumably running on a platform of being Donald Trump's errand boy. So, we defeated Roy Moore in 2017, and now we have to defeat Joe Arpaio in 2018. It's like whack-a-mole, but with crazy politicians. You defeat one, and another one pops up. So, I don't necessarily know that I would qualify Joe Arpaio as being... As disgusting as Roy Moore? Well, maybe, but I mean, he's certainly grotesque. In his own ways, and certainly, if you don't know about Joe Arpaio, then this is why you should be opposed to him. So, as Rilla Frey of the Huffington Post reports, Arpaio, who presided over Maricopa County for 24 years until 2016, refers to himself as America's toughest sheriff. His unorthodox and often discriminatory policing tactics got him into trouble, and he disregarded a 2011 Department of Justice order that forbade him from detaining people in legally based on their immigration status. The former sheriff is also known for calling his state's own jail a concentration camp, allowing jailers to break the neck of a paraplegic man failing to investigate hundreds of sex abuse cases and botching a SWAT raid in which deputies allegedly laughed as a puppy burned to death. That's what Sheriff Joe Arpaio oversaw, And it's not just that the people who worked for him were disgusting and egregious, but he ran what he called Tent City, which is basically, you know, an outdoor jail that put a bunch of inmates in tents with weather conditions that were just unacceptable. They were above 100 degrees. It was basically torture. That's who's going to be running to be the United States Senate. So basically, anyone who is the most egregious person in the United States is now contemplating getting into politics and certainly diving in. So if Roy Moore ran and if Joe Arpaio ran, we can only expect Ted Nugent to run next. And Sally Kern, maybe other egregious figures who are just crazy and way past the realm of respectability in American politics... So, he should have never been pardoned to begin with, but the fact that he's now going to run to be a United States Senator is absurd. He is batshit insane and isn't qualified to be dog catcher. I mean, this is an individual who is basically a gift to the Democratic Party and basically any opponents in a Republican primary because he is that egregious and I don't really see how he could get elected, but again, this is American politics in 2018 and anything is possible. So, absolutely. He needs to be obliterated during the Republican primary. And if that doesn't stop him, then the Democrat has got to pull out all the stops and make sure they run a good campaign, a progressive campaign. Otherwise, this maniac might be a United States senator. We We already have enough crazy people and oligarchs. We don't need another criminal to join the ranks of everyone else. We just staved off, you know, a pedophile and stopped him from uh, winning. Please, God, don't let Joe Arpaio get elected to the United States Senate. We're we're better than this. Right, America? Right? So, as you all know, the fight to save net neutrality is far from over. We're now gearing up for a long legal battle because... The FCC isn't just going to be able to repeal Title II net neutrality protections without defending their decision in courts, but Democrats, some at least, are now making sure that this turns into a political battle as well. Now, I reported a couple of weeks ago about how the Senate is going to try to force a vote using their authority under the Congressional Review Act, which would allow them to basically nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. Now, in order to get a vote on the Congressional Review Act at all, they would need at least 30 co-sponsors. And I have fantastic news today. They have 40 co-sponsors and not just all Democrats. They now have one Republican on board, Susan Collins, who has agreed that the FCC's decision should, in fact, be nullified. So, Harper Nidig of The Hill reports, a Senate bill that would block the Federal Communications Commission from repealing its net neutrality rules now has 40 co-sponsors, Senate Democrats announced Tuesday. The news comes just a day after the bill won its 30th co-sponsor, ensuring that it has enough support to clear a procedural threshold and get fast-tracked to a floor vote. It appears unlikely that the bill will pass, but Democrats see political value in forcing Republicans to take a stance on the issue. Polls have found that a large majority of the public supports keeping the net neutrality rules. The bill would use authority under the Congressional Review Act to block the FCC's repeal from going into effect, and with more than 30 senators on board, the legislation will be able to bypass the committee approval process, and Democrats will be able to force a vote on the floor. Still, assuming every Democrat backs the legislation, they will still need at least two Republicans to join them for it to pass. But even if the bill fails, Democrats think they can use the roll call vote to give Republicans headaches in this year's midterm elections. There will be a political price to pay for those who are on the wrong side of history, Senator Ed Marquis said. And Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer reiterated that same
12: sentiment. Make no mistake about it. Net neutrality will be a major issue in the 2018 campaigns. And we are going to let everybody know where we stand and they stand. Eliminating neutrality in a fair and open Internet undermines entrepreneurialism, crowds out the creativity that has been the engine of extraordinary innovation and the engine of economic growth. Millennials were born into a world with the free and open Internet. It's as integral to their daily lives as a morning cup of coffee. So when the administration rips it from their hands and hands it over to the big ISPs on a silver platter, millennials will know that Republicans were responsible and you can bet Democrats are going to make sure of that. Put simply, we're going to be fighting to save the free and open internet while Republicans are fighting to hand it over to corporations.
0: Now, since Chuck Schumer made that speech, as I stated, Susan Collins got on board, which means that if all Democrats in the Senate get on board with this and they co-sponsor this bill, then they only need one more Republican to pass this legislation, which is huge. So there's no question about it. We need to get all Democrats on board, and this is where you come in. If your senator has not co-sponsored this bill then you need to call him or her and let them know that they need to do this immediately. So there are nine Democrats in total that have yet to co-sponsor this bill. That includes Chris Murphy of Connecticut. His phone number is 202-224-4041. Tom Carper of Delaware. Phone number 202-224-2441. Chris Coons of Delaware. His phone number is 202-224-5042. Joe Donnelly of Indiana 202-224-4814 Mark Warner of Virginia 202-224-2023, Diane Feinstein of California, 202-224-3843, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, phone number 202-224-2043, Doug Jones of Alabama, phone number 205-703-4785. Note that this is his campaign phone number. He does not have an office phone number for DC yet. And last but not least, unsurprisingly, is Joe Manchin of West Virginia. His phone number is 202-224-3954. Joe Manchin is actually one of a couple of Democrats that voted to reconfirm Ajit Pai to the FCC. So he needs to make this up to us now. Claire McCaskill is also a senator that voted to reconfirm Ajit Pai to the FCC, but she is now realizing What a huge mistake she made, and she actually co-sponsored this legislation. Now, I don't usually just tell you to do things without doing it myself, so I will be calling one of these people, and I feel inclined for some reason to call Chris Murphy from Connecticut. One, because both of my senators are already on board. We have Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley. I'm from the state of Oregon. So, Chris Murphy, however, I think he's one individual out of all these senators that might be running for president in 2020. So, I want to let him know that if he doesn't co-sponsor this— He's not going to be running for president, or he can try. he's just not going to be successful. So once again, his number is 202. 224. 4041. Now, it's, I'm probably only going to get um, Hello, voicemail.: voice of Senator Chris Murphy. We are unable to come to the phone, but please leave a message, and we will call you back. Hi, my name is Mike Figueredo. I'm calling for Senator Chris Murphy to simply ask him, what is he doing? The Congressional Review Act now is going through the Senate, and he's one of nine Senate Democrats that hasn't co-sponsored it. So, what's going on? Net neutrality is a no-brainer. Not only do a majority of Democrats support it, but a majority of independents and Republicans support it as well. So, why hasn't he gotten on board to co-sponsor this legislation? We need to nullify the FCC's decision why isn't he helping? I mean, is he that much of a sellout that all the money he took from the telecom industry is just more influential than what the American people want? If so, then that's sad. And I know he wants to run for president, but he's not going to get anywhere if he doesn't get on board with this legislation. And best believe that we will be forcing a vote in the Senate on this bill. And if he votes against it, if he doesn't co-sponsor it, there's going to be hell to pay. He will be kicked out of office. And his presidential dreams... They're not going to see the light of day. So tell Chris Murphy to get on board. And again, I'm just pissed off that I even have to call and let a so-called Democrat know to do the right thing when he should have done this on day one. So do it. Those always turn into rants. Oh. Okay, so <laughs> anyways, um, we'll be taking note of every single vote so if you vote against this, when it does come out for a vote, there will be hell to pay. We're never going to forget. We will remember you. So call your senator right now and make a difference. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. If you made it this far in the episode, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to me rant for politics for a little over an hour. Uh, I truly appreciate it. And again, as usual, before we end the show, I want to send a huge thank you to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal subscribers, because you guys are integral to this show's existence. And I really mean that. So thank you so much for helping us not just survive, but to thrive as well. And I know I repeat myself when I say that, but it's so true that I feel the need to reiterate it because you guys are amazing. So thank you all so much. I will see you next week. Hopefully you enjoy the show, but uh, have a great day. (laughs)